0: Tim O'Reilly is the founder of O'Reilly Media. He's been in the publishing business since 1978. O'Reilly Media got their start doing technical writing, but began moving into producing hard copy manuals and reference books to help readers use information technologies. You may have seen their popular Missing Manual and In a Nutshell series on bookshelves. Being at the intersection of information technology and publishing has put Tim in the interesting position of seeing the new wave of publishing coming at him from a distance. As such, his company has taken a particularly aggressive approach by embracing ebooks early on, experimenting with pricing for different niches, and testing different models for writing and releasing literature. But while Tim's philosophy is clear—the printed word will never be what it once was—he compares the printed book to the LP record— There are still plenty of open questions. Tim sat down with David Weinberger to talk about how life as a publisher has changed.
1: So what's the future of paper books? It's always difficult to predict the future, and you get most predictions wrong. Uh, But I think most people have the assumption that books will be around for a lot longer than I think possible that they might well be. Uh, because it's not just a matter of consumer demand. Uh, you know, People might want uh, books, uh, want paper books, for a, long, a lot longer than publishers are willing to produce them. And the reason for that uh, are simply the economics of print. Uh, there may be a point at which it costs so much to produce certain kinds of books because the demand is sufficiently low in, in print, that even with print on demand, you just go. It's just not worth it. Yeah, you know, again, that's a, if print on demand becomes ubiquitous. Uh, you kind of say, okay, well, sure, it's always affordable, uh, but we don't know what the economics of this future are going to be. Uh, you know, certainly at O'Reilly already, there are certain kinds of books that we. Uh, you know, would have published years ago that we don't publish anymore because there's just not enough uh, sales volume. And while digital is increasing radically, uh, it's not necessarily increasing enough or in the right areas to say, "Oh yeah, that kind of book uh, would work anymore." So it sort of be it's sort of uh, like any ecosystem. Uh, there are hidden dependencies, uh, hidden interrelationships. Uh, that mean that the future doesn't happen smoothly. It's not just you know paper books go down, e-books go up. Um, you know there, there's sort of chaotic uh, discontinuities in the system, and I don't think we know uh, what they're going to be. But I, I certainly think uh, you know that when we look at, for example, the future of libraries, uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting questions to ask. What do we do when books are published e-only? Uh, what do we do uh, when we think about important uh, things that ought to be kept and collected that aren't books? And there are more of those than there are books. Uh, you know, when you know, a web page or a video or an app is the thing that ought to be preserved.
2: It seems like there are two discontinuities among the many. Um, one you just pointed to, which is the... Um, failure to preserve um, online or e-materials that we might want. But there's also this other one that I I think you may be pointing to, uh, which is that producers, publishers may stop producing affordable books before the public, the readers, all have the electronic equipment that enables them to read.
1: Yeah, I I think it's certainly possible. Uh, But as I said, I I think uh, a lot of people outside of publishing have this uh, kind of linear idea that, um, you know, certain kinds of works will always be produced. Uh, but they may be produced in a very niche way. You know, the, the collapse of the traditional distribution system is leading to pretty significant differences in in economics. Uh, you know, so, f- for example, if you look at uh, the way publishing used to work, you know, you'd pay out in advance based on what you Thought your advance in a different sense would be to the retail channel, you know. See, so you you'd go out there and you'd, you'd say, okay, we think we can sell this many to Barnes and Noble, this many to Borders, this many to the independents, Ingram, Baker and Taylor will take these many, and uh, that adds up to. And effectively, the publisher was immediately even, you know, they weren't getting cash, but they were getting an accrual of okay, I've sold in this many. So you know, there was sort of a a predictability. Now, even if you, you, know, you might get a lot of returns later, you kind of had a, a working model. Now you go to sort of print-on-demand. You have some predictability of your, uh, of your manufacturing costs, albeit at a much higher level. Uh, but you don't actually get any subsidy from the channel because you're not pre-selling anything. You know, you can't afford to have inventory. Uh, because no one is sharing the risk with you. To people outside the industry, they say, well, well that all sounds like a good thing. You don't, have, you don't have any inventory risk. But you still have development risk. For a typical O'Reilly book, for example, the development cost is greater, way greater than the manufacturing cost. You know, manufacturing cost is tiny for most books. And you know, people don't realize it, it adds up as you if you print a lot of copies and a lot of thrown away. But for example, in our business, uh, we were always pretty good at figuring out how many we thought we'd sell, and uh, the volumes were sufficient to get us a reasonable manufacturing cost. Yeah, we're, uh, we're now uh, uh, pretty much all on demand uh, using you know Ingram's Lightning Source. It, it, it's good because it, it it does mean that we can you know you don't run into the uh, the, the fact that. You have to take books out of print because there was not enough demand to get the volume for a reprint. Used to be okay, you know. You got to know that you can sell a couple of thousand to get the price reasonable, you know, because the prices are, are, you know, of of the manufacturing costs really are hugely different for say one or two thousand versus ten thousand. And uh, you know, when you go to print on demand, you get one predictable price, which is sort of is higher than your old, you know, sort of ten thousand run cost, but. A hell of a lot lower than your one thousand run cost, and uh, you know it's it's so it's generally better. And so you know, to a to a consumer, they say oh, that sounds great. You know, I mean, that's good for you, but it takes out of the equation the fact that there is still a development cost uh, for the book. Can you say a little bit more about the development cost and how much of that is
2: um, borne by or potentially borne by the author, and whether that's shifting? Well, I think
1: well? that's 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 uh, I, that's another whole uh, you know. Piece of the ecology, you know. Authors have always been in the lottery business. Very few authors get paid what would really cost to produce that work. You know, they're hoping to win the lottery. They're hoping that they will outperform. And again, except, that's not academic,
2: this, except yeah, academic, except academic authors who, as soon as they get it published, they've
1: won the lottery. So, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, but I think that's best part of it. So, what do authors get out of publishing a book? They get uh, increased status, which might allow them to do other things. Uh, you know, for example, in in our end of the publishing business, authors might get a better job. They might uh, have consulting engagements. So the economic rewards are far from being limited to what they get in advance and royalties. There's still, you know, there's still this sort of ecosystem effect. When we stop producing print books, you start ask, well, do you get the same reputation value that you used to get? From a book, you know what's the difference between an ebook and uh, you know a web page, for example. And you say, well, why would I go to all this trouble and uh, overhead? And you have to ask yourself, from a user point of view, how much of uh, a book was driven by uh, you know the demands of the distribution system rather than really demands of the reader or the writer. Take the typical business book. I've had I, I won't mention the name, but famous business book author, and I said, oh, you know, I thought you're Harvard your original. Harvard Business Review article was better. And he said, yeah, it pretty much had the whole thing in there. I had to pump a whole bunch of air into it to make the book. That never happens. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and why? Well, because, you know, a book has yeah. to be a certain length in order to appear on the shelves, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, there's it, sort of an irony to that because the users don't uh, care about that. And, and we're starting to, to see that now in E, you know, where people go, oh, yeah, yeah, 50-page. Yeah, so all it takes is a 50-page you know, quote, book. You know, we don't, it, it, the irony for us, of course, is that's where we started at O'Reilly. We published what now would be really be considered pamphlets. Our first books were 60, 70 pages, you know, because we said we were writing about individual Unix utilities and, you know, topics that everybody else said were too small for for a book, but we didn't know any better because we were from outside publishing, we said, hey, there's no documentation on said, you know, let's write something, you know, there's no documentation on uucp. you know, there's no documentation on VI, you know, <laughs> and uh, so they kind of grew up into books from being something else. And I think we're going to see that same evolution in, uh, in ebooks. books uh, You know, right now we're, we're The same seeing...
2: evolution in that they will uh, decompose into shorter books? or that Yeah, just... they'll
1: decompose into different kinds of, uh, of products.
2: You already do this. It's one of the many ways in which you've led the field here is you've allowed access to chapters...
1: As yeah. Although people don't really want that to tell you the truth. Yeah, uh, the, we've tried a whole lot of things. Say, okay, do people want to buy or download a chapter instead of the whole book? Do they want to, you know, even download pages? Yeah. And uh, no, what what it really is is people want information that's crafted for the environment. You know, so they don't want to download a chapter of the book. They want you know a self-contained work that is the right length for their needs, and they no longer need. The rest of it you know and and i think that's one of the the again leaving i'm not talking about fiction which obviously is its own you know category but i think you'll find in a lot of cases the book was a very very inefficient way of giving people what they wanted and uh you know so there are whole classes in, in in you know my business of computer book publishing where you go oh yeah you know uh some online documentation is way better because I only I only needed this little bit. you know I can go to Stack Overflow and get the answer to my question uh, and so for example, uh, our uh, publishing output has shifted hugely from reference oriented books to tutorial because tutorial you still have that learning path you've got to take you know if somebody says I need the entire walkthrough to get me from the from nowhere to competence. It has a type of narrative. Yeah, it has, right? has, a, has a kind of narrative to it that, that you know, as opposed... To, again, we always had sort of a narrative even in our more reference-y books, you know, um, you know, the classic sort of tutorial slash reference, you know, book like Programming Pearl, which is not exactly tutorial, but does have a progression and a narrative, but also is a comprehensive reference. But I, I, I think that the reference component, you know, certainly pure reference books are um you know pretty much dead on the web because if you if you just want one answer there are other places you can go to get it that's right, right? So yeah
2: earlier on you mentioned the um the real issue of trying to uh hold on to preserve um important items on the web that you know there's link rod. it goes away you go back to something that's important historically from 1998 or whatever and it it's gone um curation uh, preservation these have been um typically uh, functions of librarians when it comes to books. Do you look to librarians also to help with that function for the broader range of web materials, or is this something that should be crowdsourced or a new institution? Or?
1: I would guess that in some sense it will be new institutions. It will be, be a new kind of librarian, in the same way that there's a new kind of publisher who us grown up on, you know, on the web or in app space or whatever, you know, people who figured out how to make use of the medium. Uh, but the, the job of the librarian you know, I think uh, is not singular. You know, there are a set of functions. You know, libraries uh, certainly provide a function of free public access, uh, but they do also provide this uh, very, very important role of Preservation and I think it's a mistake for libraries to think about preserving only books. As we move towards an increased amount of publishing that's E-only, which I think is definitely in our future, whether or not books survive entirely, I think we may actually be within you know, a decade of uh, print books going, away, going the way of the LP, i.e. they will still be produced, but only in certain specialty uh, markets. The question of preservation then becomes one of digital preservation, and there's really two aspects to that one is oh my gosh uh, how fragile is the digital world and you know should there be a function of libraries of figuring out how to how to make a real archival copy that might include print you know maybe that the print on demand is one of the things that libraries do cuz they put it away somewhere uh, to make sure that there's a copy you know any library that's sort of getting rid of its print collection and saying, Oh well we're going digital may be going in the wrong direction in terms of that preservation role for libraries, uh, but there's also this sort of digital curation, you know what really matters you know, I, I think right now of books that i've read recently i've read a number of e only books you know, and will they be in libraries you know if they're Kindle only, uh, but more importantly, when you think about the important source documents of this era, uh, how many of them uh, were in print? Uh, there are entire fields that did not grow up in print. Uh, do you have a, an example? Well, let me give on? you just a very concrete example from my own uh, you know, career. I organized an event in April of 1998, uh, which was originally called the Freeware Summit. Later, became known as the Open Source Summit because we got a group of free software leaders to agree to switch to this new term, open source software. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, this is, you know, historically significant. And so I kept links to a bunch of the articles about it. But, of course, I foolishly didn't actually make my own copies of those articles. And so if you go back and you look at my archive at tim.oreilly.com and you go back and look at some of those original links, a bunch of them are 404. And I went, darn, Okay, I need to actually make sure I preserve a copy. And you think how much of the early history of the web uh, is gone, you know. And nobody knew in 1992, 1993 that the web was going to become so important. You know, another great example, in 1993 when we introduced GNN, the Global Network Navigator, it was the first commercial website. And, you know, we sat there and we... Uh, we're trying to remember what did those first ads look like, and we couldn't remember, and we hadn't kept any copies. We eventually found, a, you know, an advertising brochure that we'd made, that sort of showed what the first ads looked like. But we did the first ads, ads on the World Wide Web, and they don't exist anymore. You know, there's no digital copy of them. And maybe there is somewhere on a backup. You know. Uh, at O'Reilly that some future you know historian would find assuming that they didn't get recycled which they probably did and there's very little there. You know, the internet archive didn't start till some years later. And so most of the early history of the web is gone. And of course we saw the important economic impact of that uh, with for example the Aeolus patent lawsuit against Microsoft. You know, we actually had prior art on that, and we had actually shown it in public, but we had no records of that fact, you know, and even though you know we testified in the you know in the in the, the lawsuit, we just didn't have the records and, and I think how often that is happening you know, the fields that are the world changing fields right now uh are often uh, you know so much of what is going on is digital only. And if we don't preserve that, you know, we're going to go back, you know, just like now we say, gosh, we wish we had more of Sappho. Paul Sappho. No, no, no. 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 Sappho, Sappho, the classical poet. You know, oh, a that. Fr- <laughs> a few fragments. Okay. Uh, a I few fra- we still digital. <laughs> no, so, yeah, you, know, you think back in the classical world and, and you know, the, the, the lost works. You know, and and, you know the excitement. If you, you know, oh wow, we found this medieval manuscript, and you know, under the layer underneath is a poem of Archilochus, you know, whatever. You go, holy, holy crap! You know, we we just have this great find. You know, we're going to be like that. We'll find some piece of of digital. uh, You know, we'll recover some piece of digital history. But you know, the in the same way that the books of classical antiquity, you know, we have this spotty memory of you know what you know of the greatness of the past and just what happened to be preserved will defines our our knowledge of that past. You know, we will have in a similar way, you know, we will we'll look back and we say, "Boy, we really wish we had, you know, some of these early source documents of, you know, that were really the shaping of our future." But yeah. <laughs>
2: Since it is unknowable which of the, which documents are going to turn out to be source documents and which are just mm-hmm. going to be bad ideas and we yeah. really want to, you know. Yeah. Um, isn't this an argument for um, sort of pan-archivism as opposed to curation? So the Internet Archive approach where you really yeah. want to get everything, even though that's an impossible problem, but as, as much as, as uh, you
1: can. I, I think certainly... Um, what Brewster is doing with the Internet Archive is, is probably and has been since the beginning the the single most important thing happening in the library space in, in the Internet era. And uh, I think people will look back on Brewster as an incredible visionary and a sort of a, a, a hero of digital preservation <laughs> uh, if they don't already. Uh, he's also collecting
2: specimen copies, yeah. as Kevin Kelly calls them, of of, of paper books as well. Yeah, I mean, to, abso- to absolutely,
1: so. absolutely. And, uh, I think he really understands, you know, the the interesting um, crossover point that we're at. Uh, and it would be great if, if that effort were even more comprehensive. If uh, you know, if Brewster had the kind of funding that you know we have at the Library of Congress, for example, and say, okay. Go to town. What else would you collect, Brewster? You know, <laughs> that would be that would be a great investment. But I think there is also a role for curation by specialized communities. Uh, there is a role for people who care about something uh, to to think more carefully about digital preservation. For people who are in the library arena to actually build tools for digital preservation, so that the people who sort of care about uh, the history of the things that they're doing, are encouraged to follow certain kinds of best practices in preservation. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, one great effort doing everything. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, the web itself. You know, it's not like there's one big central web server. You know, it'd be great, for example, just imagine if we had... Uh, you know, every web server had GitHub-like functionality—the ability to sort of keep keep version control of uh, of everything that's th- that that's been done in the past. And I actually, would take, take Wikipedia as an example that people outside software development would understand. There's a there's you know, revision history on Wikipedia, and you can go back and see all the history of of every entry back to the beginning. You know, so this in some sense digital preservation is built into Wikipedia. And, uh, you know, digital preservation built into, you know, websites would be an awesome feature. Um, And and then the question also would be, you know, when, you know, websites are going away, you know, what responsibility do you have? Now, again, some people are going to care about that. Some people aren't. Uh, I, I think, you know, what Google is doing with their data liberation front is really important. You know, the right of people to take data out easily. But I, I don't think there's been enough attention paid to better tools for digital preservation and archiving by people who want to do it, uh, who want to you know have a library and advertise what's in that library. I, I was inspired to do, and I did did I've done a relatively lousy job on it. You know, my own personal archive at tim.oreilly. by what Carl Malmut has done on his sites. He he has a site called you know just a, a tab on his media.org site. It's called Museum. And, you know, it's his projects from the past. And he's done a pretty good job of archiving as he goes along. So, that, you know, when you tell a story about how Carl had put the SEC online in 1993, as compared to, say, what we did with GNN, you know, he's got a pretty comprehensive archive you know, with images and uh, you know, you know some of them, you know things like here's the letter I received from you know Representative Markey. Here's the letter from the you know SEC. You know, uh, he's done a great job of of self archiving and 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 building his history. And, and I think more people ought to do that. So uh, part of so part of the.
2: So, uh, solution in viewing this as a distributed process, where yeah. people, in addition to counting on the Internet Archive, yeah. um, but also making sure that your stuff is uh, curated and preserved, uh, is a best practice. And it's sort of like having yeah. an about. Many
1: sites have it's a best practice now to have an yeah, about yeah.
2: page for your site. Um, the museum, uh, yeah, like another really, it's
1: it, it worthwhile. And again, I think you know what's better. I mean, I love what Carl has done, but you know. If we had more sites with history built in, if you know uh, version control were a little standard markup, so yeah, yeah, you know how to navigate and find, yeah, would be would be really really good. And and uh, I think also, you know, a, a little more responsibility, you know, with for example redirects when people uh, move things around or plan to take something offline. You know, one of the things I find really, really irritating, for example, I look at old, you know, where I kept old documents and now the links point to some advertising page at the, you know, we used to point to an article in a magazine and they went, oh, well, you know, we don't really want to bother keeping that old article online. We'll point to our masthead, you know, with where we can get some ad impressions. You know, that's reprehensible, (laughs) you know, you, you know. You know, you've actually redirected it to, uh, you know, to give yourself uh, value, but not provide the value that was originally there.
2: Not only did you did you break the chain of history, you've uh, managed to yeah try to you know, profit from it. Right. Yeah, Tim,
0: thank you so much. Glad to talk to you. Tim O'Reilly is the founder of O'Reilly Media, which has been in the publishing business since 1978. This podcast was brought to you by the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. We're interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, including info on today's guest, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. This show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School.